You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. We are just about at the month of December 2018. On the slide into 2019, from this point forward, after Thanksgiving... Things just seem to enter a slipstream, so to speak. I anticipate that December is going to be a pretty crazy month, uh, both nationally and abroad. I don't necessarily know what all the details of that are going to mean, but uh, my personal opinion, get ready, get ready, get ready. (laughs) Now, I want to let you all know that we recently released a new course at the Bride Ministries Institute at www.bridemovement.com, Kingdom of God in the End Times. And that course has a lot of content. As a matter of fact, it's our longest course to date. It has 11 different sections and it is now available if you are interested in the last days in understanding Antichrist and understanding the role of the kingdom of God in opposing darkness and understanding the second coming, so on and so forth. Well, that's what this course is all about. Some of you have done great study into these areas, but well, I think we all have something to learn and I uh, am very, very happy about the way this course turned out. So, If you are interested, be sure to get to our institute and register for that course. I want to let you all know that we've just finished the manual for the How to Minister to the Human Spirit course for Bride Ministries Institute. So we're going to be recording that very, very soon. And that's going to be released through the Bride Ministries Institute halfway through the month of December. So if you've been looking forward to that and saying, you know, I can't wait until they release a course on how to minister to the human spirit. Well, the time is now. It's coming and we are now in full throttle mode trying to finish the course on realms and realm thinking and I anticipate that that will be getting recorded early, early next year in the beginning of January, but, you know, pray for me. Other than that, we have plans for a new wave of community development at the Fireplace Church. We're going to be launching that early next year. And so if you haven't connected with us at the Fireplace Church, I want to highly encourage you. You're missing out. We are having a great time learning about all kinds of things. We've been in a series on unmasking fear. And of course, if you want to join in, you can simply go to bridemovement.com, click our Fireplace Church tab, and and join the meeting. You can join live via our Zoom um, meeting, or you can watch on YouTube Live uh, because we are streaming both places now. And we stream at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on Sunday evenings. Today, I'm going to be hanging out with a wonderful, amazing woman named Kate Tolman who works with survivors, who has an incredible story of surviving and overcoming satanic ritual abuse. So 
She's going to be joining me in a minute. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, it is time for another week and episode of Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, folks. I am excited to introduce you to someone that I've known now for several months and uh, appreciate just so, so much. Her name is Kay Tolman. She is the founder and president of Restoration Gateway Ministries. Now, she has been working with survivors for a long time, being a survivor of satanic ritual abuse herself. Uh, she has developed biblically-based methods for healing the brokenhearted, uh, for executing DID integration and mind control deprogramming, as well as advanced deliverance strategies specific to occultism and witchcraft. She's the author of several books. I have a few of them here with me because she was kind enough to send them to me. Uh, Mithraism, Deliverance, and Deprogramming. Another one called Moved with Compassion, A New Wineskin for Healing and Deliverance. And Exposed, which is a story of her journey of healing from satanic ritual abuse. Um, it is so good to have you with us today, Kay. Welcome to Discovering the Truth. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, Dan. I appreciate God's timing on this. It just, you know, I've been praying about this for a while and it just feels like the right time. So I, I praise God that He always knows, you know, what's the right time and season for what he has in mind. Amen. Um, and we just did a program not too long ago about times and seasons and Kairos time and all that with uh, our guest Todd Weatherly. If you didn't catch that program, folks, be sure to go back and listen. Um, by the way, you can find Kay at rgmconnect.com. And um, Kay, you know, you have done something that we're working on uh, but it's really exciting. You actually have a school. Um, and I, I want to have you talk to us about your testimony, but I want to open up and just let us hear a little bit about the school that you've built and, and what you're doing through it. Oh, wonderful. Well, this, uh, this was kind of a lot of years in coming. Um, I would say, gosh, about six years ago, I started uh, providing training for ministers that wanted wanted to provide um, help for SRA survivors. And over the years, I would get a small group together and you know we'd walk through things. Well, uh, this year, 2018, we finally launched a virtual school and it's um, the Minister's Advanced SRA Training. And it is an 18 month program and the program is designed uh, not only to give people information and to research information, but also to de develop relationships one with another so that people have a cohort. They have colleagues in the field where we are cross-pollinating information from Holy Spirit. We're learning from each other. And so actually we're finding that the relationships that, that we're developing in the academy are actually as important and as valuable as the lessons every week. And so what I do, uh, the program 
involves uh, 18 months. It's 15 modules, five weeks a piece. And um, for instance, the first module is we use the book, SRA Exposed, and take a look at what are the symptoms of ritual abuse? How prevalent is it? We do a little research on that. And so that's how the program starts. But um, over the course, we uh, I hope to not only um, train ministers in really advanced cutting edge methods for healing and deliverance and deprogramming, but also uh, to develop a network, a consortium of experts that uh, where we continue to grow and learn. And so that's the Academy in a nutshell. And uh, we probably will have, I have two learning teams right now and uh, we'll, we do have, boy, the smallest window, if people are still interested and want to jump in and uh, catch up uh, to add some students, but uh, probably we'll have another opening maybe in the spring of next year. Got it. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That, you know, that, that is just so cool and so needed. You know, when I found out that you had already built the school, I was like, man, that is so cool because, you know, there are so many survivors, Kay. And the body of Christ has been painfully ill-equipped. Yes. And uh, no one knows this better than a person who has actually been through the body of Christ looking for healing solutions and tools such as yourself. And I, I really want to get into your journey because it's, it's, it's really inspirational. It, it's life bringing, but honest as well. And so um, while there's so many things I want to talk to you about, um, truly, we'll see how much we can squeeze into this program. Um, can you walk us through the background that you ultimately overcame through the power of Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I can talk a lot. So stop me if I <laughs> get too long. Okay. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I, um, I'll kind of tell you this story before I realized I was a survivor and then we'll take it from there. But, um, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I was born there and my parents worked at Lockheed and I had three half siblings that were 14, 16 and 18 years older than me. And so I was really raised like an only child. And um, so I standard kind of start in life. And, uh, but when I was seven years old, my, parents sold their our little track house in in uh, the suburbs and moved into a property that is a multi-million dollar property today um last listing i saw had it listed well over five million dollars so we went from a little a little suburban house to a mansion in the hills with wine cellars and maids quarters Wow. And um, within a few months, of, it was actually, it was a Chinese pagoda. We moved inside a Chinese pagoda. This, it was a four-story building and had a barn and stables and acreage and all of that uh, in a very affluent part of California today. So when I was eight years old, just a few months after we moved into the house, my father left for the Philippines and didn't come back. 
So he just like, he left, he got himself in trouble over there. This was during the seventies and he didn't come home till I was 12. So meantime, my mom lost, well, she was able to sell the house. She almost lost the house and she remarried. When I was 14, I ran away from home. I stopped getting along with my mom about the time my dad came back from the Philippines and I ran away from home at 14. So it was pretty clear I was a very troubled kid, um, but it wasn't clear why I was so troubled until I got into my mid-20s. So um, I lived about 32 different places. I lived on the road, out of my car. I lived uh, in five different states. And um, at one time I lived in Oklahoma and I remember this godly Christian woman saying to me, child, she said, what are you running from? And I looked at her and I said, I, I don't know. I'm just running, I'm running. So I believe that that um, precious woman prayed for me, as did a few others along my path. And um, when I was 19, I went back to California and uh, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And um, at the time, I was really furious with my dad because I all, you know, I had my dad on the pedestal and I loved him and he was smoking four packs a day. And so he came down with lung cancer. And at that time, um, I was working for a military contract house in Silicon Valley, which was unusual because I was a high school dropout. I didn't have, I had a little bit of college, but I would manage to get these great jobs at these military contract houses. And it was there I met this man who was very familiar with my father. And um, long story short, there was a lot of pressure from the family to marry this man. I was 19 and he was 42. So I married this man and we went to Connecticut and um, I got saved. I wanted the Norman Rockwell family thing and <laughs> We were at a bar one night, this is how I got saved, we're at a bar listening to jazz, and this wonderful um, woman, her name was Kitty Catherine, came over to me, and um, I just loved her voice, and she said, well, if you really like my voice, come to my church and hear me sing, and that's how I got saved. So it was the little white church with the steeple and the white picket fence, and I thought, you know, I had the Norman Rockwell life. And uh, this man I married kept quitting his jobs. Like every three months, he'd quit his job. And uh, after about a year of that and going homeless and losing everything, I said, I'm going back to California. So um, lost everything. And when I got back to California, I discovered that this man I was married to was a pathological liar. He had lied on the marriage certificate and um, turns out he had a wife and children on the East Coast, and that's why we moved there. So I actually, I got an annulment. I'd been, I was married to him for two years, and I got an annulment. So, uh, you know, bankruptcy and an annulment at 22 was pretty bad. So I swore off men. <laughs> now, let me ask you this before we, we, we go any further. Um, okay. So you were 14, 
running away from home, Mm -hmm. but you didn't know what you were running away from. Right. But there were some smoking guns along the way that you later actually scratched your head and asked, what was really going on? Like, why did I get these jobs? Mm-hmm. So as a high school dropout, mm-hmm. what were some of the other smoking guns looking back that helped you to say, not all is well? Well, I remember uh, one night before my father passed away, um, the man I had, the man I had married I was talking to my father and he said, they were talking about gun running in in, uh, the Philippines. And I overheard this conversation and I remember thinking, that's really weird. Why is my dad talking to John about gun running? Another smoking gun was um, I was, uh, I had health problems and I was hemorrhaging and I went to the emergency room, and at the time I was living with my father, and uh, I was I was 17 at this point, and um, my father was just beside himself, a nervous wreck about me going to the emergency room. Uh, I ended up going from there to um, see a specialist at Stanford university that was a gynecologist and a specialist and when I went to see him he said and my dad was sitting in the front room he said to me um when did you have this baby and I was like what baby I don't I don't know what baby you're talking about and he said he said well there's obvious signs of a vaginal birth when did you have the baby and I I was just dumbfounded. I didn't know what he was talking about. So he pulled me aside and he said, is your dad touching you? And I was like, no, my dad's not touching me. So that was a smoking gun right there. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So when I was, I remarried. um, And when I, uh, shortly after I had my first child, I was, well, I was seven months pregnant with my daughter And um, I call her Marie in the book. I was seven months along with her and I started having insomnia and panic attacks and just, um, I'd never had that before in my life. Um, The panic attacks, the insomnia I did have before. And so I thought everything would be fine when she was born. but I was very overprotective of her and terrified that anything would happen to her. I got pregnant again with um, my son. I think I called him Bradley in the book. And um, eight months into that pregnancy, uh, I had, I start, well, five months into the pregnancy, I started to have memories of sexual abuse finally started to come up. And eight months into the pregnancy, um, I had my first ritual abuse memory. And I, I, it was so, so horrific. I was screaming and terrified for my baby. And actually, I thought I was going to die. The emotional pain was so off the charts. I really thought I was going to die. And, um, I locked myself in the bathroom and it was the first time I ever heard the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit said to me, 
all you have to do is turn and give this to me, turn back to me. I had walked away from him. He said, all you have to do is give it to me, give it all to me. And I knew in that moment that it was an all or nothing. You know, it was like, you're either mine or you're not. So make your choice. And so I completely surrendered to God and he lifted that pain. Um, it was a miracle. I've never been the same from that moment that God touched me. So my son was born beautiful. Um, about two months, less than two months later, he was born. And about three months after that, I had my first memory of uh, childbirth. And as my story goes, I had six children, six babies um, that were sacrificed to Satan. And I recovered those memories over the course of about 25 years. It was a really long process for me. Very painful, very painful process because I kept going to therapists thinking that's where you get help for this. And although many of them were Christian, they didn't know how to minister Jesus in the healing. And so I actually had a list of like 150 memories that I recovered and the details of those memories. Um, but I wasn't healing. I wasn't getting well. And um, after about 20 years of that, and I suffered with eating disorders and um, just, you know, all kinds of problems. So over the course of those years, before I, before I get to the point where God really started healing, let me say this. I had, once I discovered the ritual abuse and I discovered that my family was all involved, my mom, my half-brothers, my half-sister, um, and they all knew where we lived, I, I knew then why my pregnancies were so horrific and why the terrible panic attacks and insomnia and terror and why I was so frightened for my children. So my husband and I, and my, my husband, um, I call him Carl in the book, he has two boys. And when we married, they were 10 and 12. So our four children and Ryan and I, um, we moved to Colorado and we went into hiding. Uh, we didn't tell people where we went and we just, we went into hiding. And so it was, you know, back then when you didn't have a social footprint, right? <laughs> when you, you know, there wasn't much email back in the early nineties or uh, there was no Facebook I was on or anything. So it was a little easier to hide. <laughs> yeah. You had to decide whether you were going to email somebody or call them because you could only do one at a time. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> um. Yeah. So back in the day, right. So God took us to Colorado and uh, we, we ended up, we were there about six months and um, our lives just fell apart. We ran out of money. We were nearly homeless. Um, with four kids in the winter 
<laughs> in the Rocky Mountains. It was, it was horrific. But, you know, I am actually very grateful that God put me, us through that experience because it really, I really had to learn to trust God. And that was something I struggled with. I deeply struggled with how could I trust a God that would let these things happen to me? How could I trust a God that, um, you know, how, how could I trust anyone? So I look back on those times in my life and I'm very grateful because God showed up big every time we had a need, every time there was a job loss, um, just, you know, we sold a car just before they kicked us out of our place, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and it, as I was reading your book, you know, when I got to that part of your story, you know, you detail some of the miraculous ways that God showed up, even meeting the lady in the store and having her just give you guys money. And it's just like, look at God, right? Just making the the way where there is no way. And um so you, you, you remarried. How, how long was it between divorcing this con artist and meeting your husband that you're telling us about now? Less than a year. Okay. <laughs> and the good news, and this is really a miracle. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. Congratulations. So, you know, God is still in the miracle working business, you know, to be able for someone like me, I was so shattered. I mean, I was shattered in thousands and thousands of broken pieces. And for someone uh, like me to be able to not only raise my children, but maintain a marriage for 30 years is definitely a testament to God and to the man I married. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's a... He's a steadfast man, I tell you. That. <laughs> He's walked through a lot with me. Wow! 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 So, 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 coming back now, um, we're working our way into your testimony, and and uh, the memory started to come when you were pregnant with not your daughter, but your son. Interestingly enough, um, memories that led to the revelation that you had actually been pregnant and given birth six times in your childhood. Now. Some people would say, that's ridiculous. And it didn't even get in an argument with the data set that you're working with, um, because that may be their story, but they're not ready for it yet. Yeah. You know, um, I, I have found that some of the most defensive people against the reality of SRA are those that are actually SRA themselves and trying to maintain their own program. Yeah. But, you know... I mean, how does this work, Kay? When do you start getting pregnant? And how were they able to prevent you at 14 from realizing that at 11 or 10, you had been pregnant and giving birth? Well, I think there are a few factors involved. First of all, um, I was very dissociative. So my front altar, the part of self that went to school every day, um, was not aware that I was pregnant. It was um, other altars inside that were deeply hidden inside. And so if you don't know you're pregnant, you're not necessarily going to eat for two, right? Because you don't, you don't have that excuse. You don't even know. Um, what they did is they would typically get me pregnant uh, 
early in the year where I would be five, six, seven months along by August. And they would, um, they would take the baby somewhere around 30 weeks um, in while it was summertime, while I was off from school. And you know, I finally put that together um, because the first ritual memory I had when I was pregnant with my son was on August 3rd, which is Lugnasta. And that is, that's a, a, a ritual occult holiday that requires human sacrifice. And what would happen to me is every year around my birthday, my birthday is at the end of August, I would have this depression and I would weep and cry and I, I wouldn't even know why I was weeping and crying. And so um, it wasn't until really began to unpack how many babies there were the grief was off the charts, just so much grief. And, you know, I look back on those years when I would overeat and I would drink and I would overwork and I would, you know, anything to not feel what I was feeling. So, you know, I can have some compassion for those years that I walked through. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, um, it took a lot of years later to even come to realization that I was actually a perpetrator in some of these rituals. And then that was a whole nother grieving process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, Jesus talked about um, those that are forgiven much love much. Yes. Um, I think, I think, Oh God, how could you even look at me? And and he says, I love you. I forgive you. Um, there's a grace in God that is inexplicable. And it's that grace, that love that has forgiven me, um, that has forgiven my family and, um, and set me free. That is the reason I, I'm here today, which is the reason I share my testimony and uh, work so tirelessly to see other survivors set free. My gosh. So they would, if I'm getting this correct, actually induce the labor and the birth so that you would give birth before full-term children were. Yes. And that's how they could hide the size and the, because it happened over summer. Yes. Mm -hmm. My gosh. The first memory that I have, I was 10 years old um, and I were, my mother was my, was the midwife and um, they must have, they must have given me some medication to induce labor. And I remember giving birth. I mean, my whole body, I had what's called an ab reaction where I would actually feel the contractions. I could feel what was happening in my body. Um, and, and then when the baby was born, the baby was blue and which makes sense because babies around 30 weeks don't breathe very well. Their lungs aren't fully developed. Um, and I was terribly aware that my mother murdered that baby. And so 
when I remembered that, I, oh my gosh, the hatred toward my mother, that my mother murdered my baby, um, was that, that was really something to overcome. Uh, and, and, you know, God works in such mysterious ways because um, I, I discovered that my mother was one of the primary perpetrators of the abuse that I suffered. And yet in later life, the Lord asked me to care for her, to take care of her. And so I, um, she had Alzheimer's, dementia, and paranoid schizophrenia, along with DID. My mom was an SRA survivor too. And so um, I was responsible for her for eight and a half years. I brought her to Oregon and um, looked after her care. And I remember when she finally passed away, the Lord reassured me that she was with him, which, I mean, she was a witch. God saved her. God took care of her. I mean, that's his grace. That's his love. And um, he reassured me that she was with him. And I said to him, Jesus, why did this have to take eight and a half years? And he said, he calls me Katie. And he said, because Katie, it took you that long to really forgive her. So it took wiping her nose and buying her diapers and caring for her, for God to draw that compassion so that I could say that I really loved this woman before he took her home. You're so gracious. You're so gracious. But those were some tough years, some really tough years. So I, you know, I... um, I recovered a few memories um, before we left California and then God brought us to Oregon and really I hid here for about 12 years. Nobody knew I was here. I was very careful about photographs and unlisted phone numbers and all of those things for a lot of years. Um, And I started to grow in my Christian faith, my walk with Jesus and, um, you know, God was teaching me about forgiveness and love. And um, I had struggled for about eight years with very serious eating disorders. I was very bulimic. And um, and it was um, that struggle that God used to get me to my first deliverance minister. <laughs> and, um So the Lord uh, divinely networked me with a man that um, he was a Christian uh, pastor and a counselor. And he said to me, you know, um, I, I think you need some deliverance. And I said, well, Christians can't have demons. And he said, well, give me a minute. I'll prove it to you. (laughs) Uh, So I was convinced from that moment on uh, you know, well, in, in your defense, you are not the first SRA survivor that I've met that has believed at one point or another a Christian cannot have demons thanks to uh, certain doctrines. So, Right, right. So God just like blew the lid off of that. Ooh. Yeah. So I spent five years going to different deliverance ministers and, mm. you know, I learned a lot about what not to do. <laughs> 
And, and one of the things um, that I discovered, re really, which is why I wrote the book, Moved with Compassion, yeah. uh, is that a lot of deliverance ministers mean well, but they don't know how to care for the broken pieces of the heart in the process of deliverance. Uh, so many don't know how to deal with the DID and the deliverance. Well, and, and on this, you know, we're just, I'm just going to take a moment to highlight the importance of what you just said, because there are a lot of deliverance ministers, even now, I mean, I have them reported to me, like people, because they come to me and they, they share their stories and, you know, what's worked for them in the past, what has not. And, um, you know, they say, you know, but I went to so-and-so and they told me that all of my parts were demons and they were trying to cast them out, but they wouldn't leave. You know, Daniel, can you help me cast out my parts? No, I can't. I will not. <laughs> I can help you. I love your parts. Um, we can minister mercy and forgiveness and grace, but not that. Um, but, but, but the ignorance, you know, no one told them. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of these deliverance ministers that are doing some of these, you know, egregious things, uh, trying to cast out the altars and so forth, they just weren't told. And so, and that's part of our mission, right? Mm. Is that's what certainly part of mine uh, as, as training in this academy is um, how to minister to parts, how to love them, how to bring reconciliation of the soul and healing of the soul with Jesus. And my goodness, it doesn't take, you know, 20 years like it did with me to walk through every little thing. Um, but God can integrate thousands of parts at one time. And, he, you know, he can do this miraculous work. Um, but there's a way to do that where you honor and bless and forgive and love and bring the restoration um, that is safe for, for SRA survivors. And that's, that's something really important to me in my work and in training. So, so at the back, I've moved with compassion. There are a few chapters on that. What was some of your bad experiences where, where deliverance sessions that you were receiving didn't go so well? Tell us. Well, I went to this one minister, um, bless his heart, this uh, pastor and his wife um, in the state of Washington. So I went across the river and uh, I get to the door and I get there and I'm green. I mean, I'm like, I do not feel well. And the pastor's wife, she said, I said, I don't feel very good. I think I'm going to go back home. And she grabbed my arm and she's like, no, no, you're coming with me. And so she drags me in. Okay, great. So they battled for two hours to get one devil out. I don't think they actually got the devil out. They were like, pounding my head with the Bible. They were screaming and yelling at me. And um, I just left like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And I, there was no positive result from it. I felt shamed and dirty and I felt like there was evil in me and they couldn't get it out. And it was, oh, it was awful. And um Really, that has led to a lot of my work for deliverance say, saying when it's ritual abuse, we have to get the legal ground. If we get the legal ground broken and we get that sin under the blood of Jesus, we get the covenants and the oaths and the vows and the blood oaths and all those things under the blood of Jesus, 
then the enemy has to leave and you don't have to yell at him to get him out. He just has to go. So, you know, I believe deliverance can actually be a reasonably peaceful process and, and not a horrific, you know, writhing on the floor sort of thing that I think a lot of SRA survivors have experienced. And it's part of my mission to make sure that deliverance ministers um, are doing that to people. Um, that they're that they are so well versed on what the demonic strongholds are, what the rituals are, and how to break that stuff, that um, that the process is smooth and peaceful, <laughs> getting it out. <laughs> <laughs> so um, no banging people over the head with Bibles and yelling at them in right. Kate Holman's ministry. <laughs> 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 All right. So, so, so coming back to your story, um, this is, that was really good. Thank Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, you, you're on a journey to recovery, you know, um, you're getting these memories back. You're looking for help. I mean, how helpful were the churches that you were finding during these years that you were moving around? I went to, um, so you mentioned the lady I met in the grocery store that gave me money. That lady turned out to be my spiritual mom, and she helped me get established in a wonderful Bible-believing church, uh, and I was there for nine years, and that's where I was really discipled in the Word, and no one had ever discipled me in the Word, but the word demon was a taboo. That was a taboo topic at the church. We didn't talk about that, but, but you know, after I got, I started getting free, People would admit to me, gee, you know, I was always uncomfortable sitting next to you in church. You know, so I had cooties and didn't even know it. And nobody, nobody knew how to do deliverance. Nobody, what, nobody told me where to go. I had, I was clueless. If it wasn't for God's intervention and divinely networking with me with people, um, I wouldn't be here today. So, um, but what God did do is he connected me with a man, I call him Joseph in the book. Um, this man became a spiritual father to me. And um, boy, from the very first session, he used this incredible prophetic gifting that he has and, um, and an anointing for deliverance. And in, I worked with him every other week for about three months. And I got more healing in that three months than I did in 20 years of therapy. And so it was miraculous. It was just miraculous. And um, I remember the very first session, he and his wife prayed over me. And he said, he called me Katie, because Holy Spirit calls me Katie. So he would call me Katie. And he said, Katie, you split at birth. Well, 14 years later, yeah, I did. Um, I'm aware 14 years later that I was uh, traumatized in utero. I was uh, split at birth. I was subjected to Kabbalah rituals and Freemasonry rituals and CIA and you name it. Um, there were a lot of organizations involved in my abuse. But what George and his wife did that no one had ever done for me is they put their arms around me and they dedicated me to Jesus. 
They broke that satanic dedication right there, first meeting, and they they wrapped their arms around me and they dedicated me to Christ and um, changed my life, changed my world. And so, you know, after three months of that kind of miraculous care, um, in all those years of counseling, and I had wonderful counselors, I'm not faulting them, but they didn't know how to do deliverance. And they didn't use prophetic gifting to see what was really going on inside. And I couldn't see it myself. So, you know, it took the gifts that God had given George. Um, and in this one session, I'll never forget this. I prayed all the way getting there. And I was like, God, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. I can't keep going on like this. I need a miracle. And that day I walked in the door and George, well, I call him Joseph in the book. He said, um, you're going to do a 360 today. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm game. And that day we had a three hour session and he integrated 360 altars. And in that time, I recovered another baby memory. Mm. And what was so miraculous to me was the first memory I had of the baby took, took me months to grieve um, and get over that, that I had lost a baby. This time with God, it took half an hour. And it was like, George just looked at me and he said, Katie, are you ready to give Jesus the pain? And I was like, yeah, I'm so ready to give Jesus the pain. And so I gave him the pain and I was healed that moment on from that memory. It wasn't several months of grieving. It was done. And so that was my divine turnaround. 360 altars. That was my divine turnaround and the miracle that set me on the path of ministry. And so George said to me, the next time I met with him, he said, Katie, God wants you ministering out. You've been on the receiving end all of these years, and now God wants you to minister out. And so I said, well, gee, George, I would do that if I had your gifting. And he said, God is going to give you my gifting. And I said, well, I want a double portion. <laughs> I, want, I want an Elisha double portion. And so God was very generous in, in that. And uh, George uh, continued to work with me. I, I was um, kind of like an apprentice under him for about three years wow. uh, before I started Restoration Gateway. So that's, that's how I ended up in ministry and continue to, to grow and to learn. Uh, and then in those years of, of ministering to others, I, um, the Lord started teaching me about deprogramming and no one ever in all those years had said, Kay, you're a mind control slave. No one had said that to me. I had no idea. So, um, I would sit down at every session and I would, I would, um, pray Ephesians 1:17 and ask God for his wisdom and revelation every single session. God, show me, show me, show me, show me. And he did. You know, and so that's um, where I started to learn about 
mind control programming and how it works and the various factions involved in all of that. Now, I, I want to ask you this question because, um, you know, in the 90s, there was or seemed to be like end of 80s going into the 90s, a, a, a groundswell of people that began to say, hey, there's something going on with these satanic cults. They eventually called it the satanic panic. And a lot of stuff was getting mm, discredited. Mm -hmm. um, did anything that was going on with all of that affect your healing journey? Oh, tremendously. Um, my husband, whom I dearly love and adore, um, when I told him that I had a baby that was lost um, to uh, dedicated to Satan, he was like, I don't believe that. That's not true. And so um, interesting, you say those that are the most defensive and most against it tend to be survivors themselves. Um, but he absolutely would not believe me. He would not support me in my recovery. He would not, he didn't want to hear about it. He absolutely would not. And um, there was actually a point in our marriage where, um, you know, I had been to therapists that had documented MPD in my medical records. So there was one night where my husband was like, I'm going to leave you and take your kid, take the kids. And I knew for I knew if it went to court, I'd be considered an unfit mother and I would lose my two children. And so I um, at that moment was just like, okay, whatever. I you know, I became a doormat in the marriage because I didn't want to lose my children. I'd already lost six. I couldn't lose two more. And so um, that false memory syndrome. Um, teaching that was out, that was discrediting people. Uh, two of the people that worked with me were both sued with that false memory syndrome stuff. And, um, and there was a point in 2007 when my husband and I separated and uh, it was in part due to the ritual abuse. And he was still saying all those years later, it's not real. It didn't happen. Um, and he came home one day, or he came to my apartment one day with a binder from a Christian university on false memory syndrome. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> that is so it. I am so done. And I went to the Lord and I said, I want a divorce. And the Lord said, no. And I was like, no, no, you're not hearing me. I have money for an attorney. I want a divorce right now. And the Lord said, no, no, I'm going to heal this marriage. And he did. But um, that false memory syndrome um, really discredited survivors. Many professionals uh, still believe that today. But the truth about, there's actually a book by Dr. James Friesen called The Truth About False Memory Syndrome. Um, that book was my saving grace. And mm. I would I would buy that book for every therapist that worked with me. I was like, don't you dare <laughs> come at me with this false memory stuff. Uh, and so it's actually part of the academy. I you know it's recommended reading for the academy. But um, 
the truth about false memory syndrome is that the board that put that organization together were pedophiles. Yes. And there was a woman that came out of it that was an SRA survivor. And so, um, and the fact of the matter is that false memory syndrome is not actually in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's not a real disorder. So they how they managed DID is, mm -hmm. how they managed to get, um, to get court cases on that, um, I can only explain by witchcraft. I, I think that's the really discredited people. It's, it's really sad. You know, I, I think that there's so many things that God really wanted to expose 20, 25 years ago that are now being brought to the surface. But I, I think that long ago, there was enough ignorance that it was completely squashed. And for some time afterwards, you don't hear much. Well, my hope, actually, I would like to found a Christian foundation for uh, research mm -hmm. on SRA. And I would like to reopen that discussion and get some real statistics today. Because I'm here to tell you, ritual abuse is far more prevalent today than it was in the 90s. Um, back in the 90s, they were saying 2% of the population is SRA. It is much, much, much higher than that today. And so it's time that we get, we get some statistics, some really good working statistics, and, um, and give people some hope for recovery because God is a miracle-working God. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I believe that that is absolutely necessary. Um, I, I am with you. Now, um, I want to, you know, kind of circling, um, you know, just going back and touching different points of your story because it's so rich, you know, and um, you really have uh, experienced the whole gamut of, of things, even, you know, and, and this is one of the things that, you know, we're trying to figure out how to be very intentional about is helping people move from, you know, complete ignorance, I don't know what happened to me, to this is what happened to you, I am a survivor, and then out of the identity of being a survivor to in the identity of being a child of the Most High God, that is who I am. I am much more than just someone that survived impossible circumstances. I am a daughter or son of the King. Um, and making those transitions is, it, 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 there's a lot that goes behind that, each step there's a lot. And you know, that emotional piece, you know, we can, we can integrate parts. We can get, you know, we can get people free from the demonic, but it's that emotional piece that sometimes takes time. Mm. And for a lot of survivors, they actually have to emotionally grow up. Wow. You know, they, because emotionally we're stunted at the age of the trauma. So the broken pieces of the heart are typically, you know, not speaking of primary identities, but broken, broken fractured parts um, are age arrested. And so they stopped growing, they stopped maturing. And so when God brings that healing, sometimes we have to ask him for that supernatural maturation as well. Um, but so once you get past the crisis of, 
you know, I see it as stages. I see five stages of SRA recovery. And um, I actually have a little book that I did called Serving SRA Survivors. And in that first stage, it's discover, you know, it's learning tools and discovery, and you want to like build your foundation in Christ. If I didn't have a foundation in Christ, I wouldn't have made it through 25 years of recovery. I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without Christ. Um, so I'm a firm believer that Christ is a necessity for the healing process. But then you go into a crisis stage. Once you start to recover the memories, there's a crisis stage of, oh my gosh, this happened to me. How could this have happened to me? So really, you know, there's the emotional components of how do I get past denial? How much of the denial is mind control? And how much of the denial is, wow, I can't really cope with this. So, you know, even when we get people um, through a lot of the healing, the emotional piece does take time. It takes uh, fellowship and love and relationship with Christ where they continue to grow and heal. So what are steps three, four, and five? <laughs> so step, step three um, is really kind of a, a middle stage. You get out of crisis. Now you have some tools. And now you're like plodding through, getting through um, what happened, what is my story. And then you get to stage four, which is actually like point of healing. And this is a place where most survivors have mind control programming that tells them if you go past this point, it's a point of no return, you're gonna explode, you never healed, all the, all the um, lies of the enemy. So that can be a very bumpy stage. It's just before you're done. Uh, it's very bumpy and can be very crisis. And then you get to the really the deep, deep bottom stuff, the ickiest stuff. And that's often where people realize, wow, you know, I acted as a perpetrator in this ritual. I did horrible things. There's blood on my hands, you know, coming to those realizations and then being leaning on your relationship with Christ and the truth of Christ to come out of that. And then stage five is really where we continue to grow and heal because when someone is shattered, you know, I hear people say, Oh yes, I'm perfectly all perfectly integrated. And that's happened five times for me. <laughs> you know, so, so finally, I'm just like, you know what? Um, my brain likes to dissociate. So if I get too stressed, I may, I may split again. So I just, now I know the tools. I know how to reintegrate those parts. But, you know, um, sometimes I think survivors receive a disservice when they're told, oh, you're totally perfectly healed and totally whole because what happens a year from now a trigger an unusual trigger happens and oops there's another memory and there's another part did i not hear god does god not look what went wrong so they totally spiral at that point i think it's wiser to say you know what there might be a little cleanup where you know people that haven't been shattered learn and grow their whole life so those of us that have been shattered, we can expect that we'll continue to learn and grow and heal. 
for our lifetime. And that's stage five. That's where we know how to heal mm-hmm. ourselves and to work with Jesus. And maybe we minister out, uh, but we also know when we need help and know when to call someone in Christ to minister through. You know, th- there's so much wisdom in what you're saying. Um, because, you know, even people that are solid, you know, that didn't go through SRA, it's like, when does God stop going deeper with us? You know, right? like it's continual. It's like all your life It's like, really that, you know, and, um, that that's, it's an ongoing thing. So to, to give someone a false finish line, like you said, I, I, I think it actually becomes more of a stumbling block than anything because I've met people that, you know, they, they meet me and they swear up and down. I am a completely healed SRA survivor. It's like, oh, would you like to pray together? It's like, yeah, let's pray. And they're manifesting. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't even, this not even a session. It's like, whoa, okay. Um, completely perfectly healed person. But, you know, it's because God's doing another layer, right? And um, one of the things that I think is, you know, God is continually giving the body of Christ more understanding. Mm-hmm. Like what we know the enemy is capable of right now is not what we knew the enemy was capable of 10 years ago. Right. Right. So we didn't even have a grid to hear Holy Spirit on things that we can hear Holy Spirit on now. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, at least, I don't know, maybe you, you're different. No, I, no, I agree with you. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. It's like, I can hear God on things and I'm like, I know what you're talking about, but I know if God had told me something like that five years ago, it's like, what? Yeah. Even if I had a platform for that. <laughs> and, and so now, now I wanted to come back because you, you, you threw this bombshell out there, okay? You said but my my programming was CIA, mm-hmm. Kabbalah. There was a lot of organizations involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that make sense with a father who's overseas in a war? Mm. Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. What we, we may have to do is just leave it as a cliffhanger and pick up another time. <laughs> okay, we get started. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this. Um, My dad spoke German. He was a Princeton graduate. He was a brilliant man. Um, He, uh, along with my mother, are multi-generational Illuminati Illuminati survivors. Um, I believe the uh, Illuminati bloodlines on my dad's side, I can trace him back before Mary, Queen of Scots, um, supposedly a direct descendant to Bonnie Prince Charlie. So I have a royal bloodline on my dad's side. And uh, so my dad in World War II, he flew, he, he flew aircraft in World War II and uh, spoke German and was in Germany. And it's, uh, I believe my father was a double agent. Because when I, uh, I recovered memories of um, um, Josef Mengele, and uh, I won, in one of the memories, I was standing on a tarmac in South America looking at him, and he spoke of my father. He's like, I know your father. So, um, I, uh, so uh, my father, I believe, was a double agent. Uh, I believe he was a Nazi. I had significant Nazi programming, Mangala programming. Um, and I believe Mengele was uh, deeply involved with the CIA, so there was a connection there. And then um, 
there was Freemasonry uh, and Catholicism on my mom's side. And um, as a matter of fact, you know, if you, you read SRA Exposed, I tell the story of being impregnated by Pope Paul VI and uh, being taken back to the Vatican so he could sacrifice the baby. Uh, so um, a lot of my research has been, you know, what does Freemasonry, Catholicism, Kabbalah, what do all these things have in common? How are they working together? And, um, and how are they programming together? So at some point we'll talk about Mithraism and so Mithraism is a hidden root underneath both Catholicism and Freemasonry, which are the two major um, belief system branches, not including the military, uh, where satanic ritual abuse uh, is prevalent. So in my story, um, my story involved US military personnel at the Presidio in San Francisco. Um, uh, I have memories of being waterboarded. Um, it's horrible things. Uh, Freemasonry, really significant. And then, so when God releases me into ministry, like right away, I'm doing Freedom From Freemasonry workshops. And it wasn't until a few years ago, I figured out, I did some genealogy and figured out that um, one of my ancestors on that royal bloodline helped establish Freemasonry. So God, so out of the bloodline of Freemasonry, God gave an authority to break it. And so that is a blessing that's come out of that. So I'm actually working on um, a project of, of releasing information on how to break degrees 34 to 99 and higher so well i'd be interested to hear a few thoughts on that Kay. i don't know how much <laughs> i can uh <laughs> squeeze into this program but i'm looking at about 10 more minutes so okay. would you rather go in that direction or share a little bit more about mithraism and we'll just have to think about a part two at some point so we can go a little deeper Okay, so um, what what would you like to? All right, I'm going to just say let's just talk about Freemasonry yeah. here because now you, you see, um, I, I I've run into Freemasonry going into and one of the weirdest things one of my clients told me they had a knowledge that they were somewhere in the 300 degree of Freemasonry and they don't even know fully what that means because it's like so supernatural and other dimensional at that point. Mm -hmm. But that, that, that I, I know that certain even African witch doctors have gone beyond and, and then it's like, wait a minute, but what branch of Freemasonry are you in? So just talk to me a little bit about what you know, beginning at degree 34, because I, I, I think this is fascinating. So I think part of the deception with, so Freemasonry likes to have um, what you see and what you don't see. So you have the regular lodge and then you have the hidden, the Illuminati. Well, then you have the 33 degrees and then you have hidden the rites of Mizram, which are Egyptian up to 99, the Egyptian uh, rituals, which actually includes 
degree 64, which is Mithraism. And so the little book on Mithraism is an important um, prayer tool to break that, that 64th degree, that one. Yep. And then, um, so the degrees, um, they just become progressively evil uh, up to 99, but we also know that they go, up, I've heard to 365. So a lot of people say 360, but then there's also a hidden five, 365. And so what I believe, um, what God said in the book of Luke, where Luke 7, where he said, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And so I believe that God is going to uncover this stuff. He's going to uncover the hidden works of darkness um, in all of these organizations, these pedophile rings. And um, I believe he's going to uncover the Catholic Church and the pedophile rings in the Vatican. I've, had, I've worked with so many survivors that have been taken to the Vatican. I believe that organization is going to be exposed. Freemasonry is going to be exposed. Our U.S. military personnel are going to be exposed. NATO is going to be exposed. New World Order is being exposed. So, you know, um, it's, it's not all that time to be alive. Yeah, I believe that. Um, I, and I'm not going to get into all my stuff on that because you're going to get me preaching now. But, you know, the fact of the matter is um, that that's very interesting that you – so you're suggesting that from 34 to 99 or whatever, these are a bunch of ancient Egyptian rituals connected. It's called with the rites of Mizraim. I'll send you some information. Rites of Mizraim. Wow. And um, level 64 is Mithraism. Hmm. Sage of Mithras. How did you come across this knowledge? Well, you know, God is so wonderful. You know, when we help other people, they help us too. Sure. And so um, there was a man um, contacted me from Germany many years ago, I, back in 2012 maybe. Um, and he taught me about Mithraism. And he was the one that brought to my attention the rights of Mizraim because he wanted it broken off of him. He was an SRA survivor. As a matter of fact, he invited me to Germany to speak and to teach, which I did. And, uh, oh, wow, that was just a phenomenal trip. Um, that's a whole story in itself. But um, he, he is an apostle. I ordained him as an apostle. And uh, so he shared lots of great information that Holy Spirit had led him to research for his own freedom. And so he would just partner with me and we would pray together and break that stuff. And then I'd go to all my other clients and go, hey, we got to break this. Look what we found. <laughs> we got to break that. So. Got it. That is so, so, so good. Well, um, well okay. You, you just really blessed us today. Um, I just want to know, is there anything that you want to say that you haven't said today that you want to mm -hmm. tell survivors, those that are listening, that you really want to highlight or make sure that people walk away with? Mm. So I just want to say that healing today, that God has accelerated healing so rapidly today. So don't be discouraged by the length of my story. 
because God did a lot of work in me and my character and my walk with him through all of that, um, that you get to stand on today for a much faster healing. Uh, and I want to say that um, God cares about every wound in your heart, every hurt, and he wants to turn those things into faith that is pure gold. And so I want to just encourage you just to increase your intimate walk with Jesus because that really is the answer. That's where the healing is. And he will lead you to the right people, to the right resources. Uh, he will lead and guide you every step of the way. So be encouraged and know that God cares about you. Amen. Well, folks, um, I've been talking with Kay Tolman. She is the founder and president of Restoration Gateway Ministries. And uh, they have a website at www.rgmconnect.com. Now, Kay has a number of books and you can find them on her website. And uh, please, if you don't get, well, but one, keep in mind satanic ritual abuse exposed, which is her story and a lot of what we've been discussing today, although there's a whole lot more book. Okay, thank you so much for your time. And folks, until next week, God bless and Godspeed. God bless you, Dan. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. If you would like to connect with us at Bride Ministries or to support what we are doing financially, visit us at www.bridemovement.com.